You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient with the Fertility Center of Las Vegas here for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my stunningly radiant colleagues here, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. We are good. How are you? Good. I got, um, (laughs) so nobody ever knocks on my door ever. So the other night I got the doorbell rang and I'm like, okay. And of course noticed that the doorbell had a weird ring to it. So I have to get that looked at, but open the door. And there was this very nice UPS man who said, I think this maybe belongs to you. And lo and behold, my dog had gone out for an expedition in the neighborhood. And the very nice UPS man brought her back to us. Aww. How nice is that UPS dude? Yeah. I think people knock on our door all the time. All I get is more and more Amazon boxes, especially this time of year. I know that's what I was going to say. Every time I hear the doorbell ring, I just assume it's Amazon because nobody else rings the doorbell. (laughs) What do you do with your boxes? Like when you're done with them, what do you like? I I literally think they go from, you know, the front door. I open them up. And then they end up going, they get like throw. I literally have this room that I throw the boxes until they get ridiculous. And then we go and we break them down and bring them to somewhere else to recycle them. It's just a pain. Well, fortunately, my husband deals with lots of boxes because he runs a vending company. So uh, he is always recycling things. So it's really easy for us. But I will tell you, I just feel guilty because I have a teenage member of my family who will order shampoo from Amazon when we can drive, you know, three blocks down the street to Walgreens and get shampoo. And so every single one of those come in these huge are pretty good sized boxes with all this wrapping. And I mean, I'm like, golly, the environment, I feel, feel terrible. I feel guilty. I have a cousin who actually works at an Amazon distribution warehouse. And he's like, we're Fulfill- talking fulfillment center, Susan, fulfillment center, fulfillment center. Okay. So <laughs> we were talking about his job one day and essentially he was like griping about people who ordered dog food. And oh yeah. Like, oh my goodness. That's me because I do kind of live in the middle of nowhere. And so it's at least a 15 minute drive one way Yeah. to get to anything. I mean, even to go to the grocery store, it's 15 minutes. And so there was one day, I remember the day that I started buying my dog food at Amazon because I had been at the big chain pet food store, not going to like belittle anybody. And I'm sitting there and I can't find the food that I want. And it was one of those where at the time I had some bigger dogs. So I wanted the 40 pound bag and they didn't have any. You have to buy two 20 pound bags and they were out of it. And then half of the store is full of all that grain free food that apparently you're not even supposed to be feeding your dogs anymore because it gives them heart condition. So I'm just like, I don't understand the entire concept. I was standing in the aisle and I was like, 
I got on Amazon, pulled up the food. It was five or $10 cheaper and it arrived at my door. I'm like, subscribe and save. We're done. Yeah. Except for doggy Christmas presents. I'm never walking in again. Yeah. Well, you know, even stuff, I don't routinely try and get stuff from Amazon that I could get really easily down the street. But, you know, every now and then it'll be like a Monday and I'll have like, you know, two or three things that I'm out of. And I'm like, it's Monday. It's going to be like four days before I can go even to the store to do any of this stuff because I'm so busy. And, you know, day and a half later, sometimes, sometimes in Nashville, we get stuff same day from Amazon. We just started getting some same day stuff and it is so exciting. We needed um, (laughs) like we use lots of like examination gloves at my house because of the gluten-free thing. It's a whole lot easier for cleaning and avoiding cross-contamination and stuff like that. And so we were getting low on gloves and we ordered them and they were there like three hours later. Oh my goodness. I can't get my husband to go to the store and back that quick. (laughs) I know. So instead of discouraging us from using Amazon, the more we talk about it, the more we're getting fired up about it, right? I I always see those pranks that people play where they save their Amazon boxes and then put them all outside at the same time to freak somebody out. And so I feel like you really should put that to play at some point or other. (laughs) Well, you know, actually, I saw a story this week in the news And apparently, I don't think it was somebody playing a prank like that, but it was the same sort of scenario. They interviewed, I think it was in Alabama, they interviewed the neighbors of this person. And there's like, I mean, like 300 Amazon boxes in their front yard. I think I saw that on a feed. I just kind of went past it and didn't read it. But oh my goodness. So nobody can ever figure out what's going on, but something like, I think they talked to the Amazon guy and something about packages that get sent to the wrong place. They've signed up to like look at them and somehow, so it's almost like they're like working for Amazon or something, but they're sitting in the front yard. So that didn't entirely make sense either. So if anybody figures that out, let us know. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Well, are we ready to kind of move to our question of the day? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so this one's a little bit lengthy, so hold tight. All right, so first, I want to thank you for having your podcast. I'm a physician in an unrelated field, and your podcast was the first that has given me information and reassurance during this very long, emotionally exhausting process. I am 38 years old, and we've been trying to conceive for three years. I've had a pretty substantial fibroid load, and my first consultation with REI about six months after trying to conceive led to a referral to a fibroid specialist. All the reproductive workup came back normal. AMH was 4.24. Hormones were normal. Semen analysis, normal. Two weeks prior to her open myomectomy, she got pregnant naturally and quickly had a natural miscarriage. Two months later, she had the myomectomy where the surgeon removed 15 fibroids and did not enter the uterine cavity. Post-op saline showed normal cavity, waited six months to try again and got pregnant after two months. She had a miscarriage at six weeks and it was trisomy 22. We got pregnant again in October, missed miscarriage, it was triploidy. And then again in April, which was an ectopic treated with methotrexate. After waiting three months after methotrexate, they did an IVF cycle so that they could do PGTA. She's uh, at the time was 37, got 30 eggs, 23 were mature, 22 fertilized, 15 blasts, and 12 were PGT normal, and three low mosaics. That is like a dream stimulation. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really unusual. She's a high achiever. Yeah. Our first FET, um, the month after retrieval, failed um, with the trilaminar lining. Baseline was 7.9 and it got up to 9.1 millimeters. Immediately went to a secondary transfer. Baseline lining was only 6.7. 
And after 13 days of estrogen, increased to 7.3, but faintly trilaminar. They've added vaginal estrogen since the serum levels did not increase despite increasing oral dose. She's incredibly disappointed that this could be leading to cancellation, especially since all prior ultrasounds show natural lining to be at least nine. So she has four questions. Is it possible to get back a trilaminar appearance in a cycle that seems to be fading? Two, if the transfer gets canceled due to less than an ideal lining, is there any value to doing an endometrial biopsy for ERA, Emma, Alice, or Receptiva, or is it not useful in, quote, a bad cycle? Knowing that we get pregnant rather quickly in a natural cycle, are we better off trying a modified natural transfer? And she had a normal saline ultrasound two months ago. Is it worth pushing for an office hysteroscopy? She's worried that they missed something given the myomectomy and DNCs and ectopics. I appreciate all that you do with your specialty and podcast. I tried to keep my story concise, but with many sub infertility, it's a long story. So is it possible to get back a trilaminar appearance in a cycle where it seems to be fading? I mean, as long as she's not bleeding. I'm, yeah. I mean, I've seen sometimes when people have gotten vaginal asteroids, sometimes I've seen people get really thick linings just in a couple of days. So I'm guessing probably that window has already passed for her. <laughs> probably she didn't just send the question, but yeah, I mean, you can. And you know, the one overall thing about this that I really noted was she's really only had one opportunity. I think if I, there's a lot of information in there, but I think she's only had one FET since she did IVF. And so, I mean, she, you know, sometimes people just don't get pregnant their first time around. She has a ton of beautiful embryos. And with each one of those, I mean, she has a really high chance of pregnancy. And so, you know, I don't think I would throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and just say, oh, it's not going to work or, you know, or maybe I should try something different. I mean, my feeling is certainly she could convert to an ERA biopsy cycle if this cycle doesn't work out. But I don't know that I would jump to do a natural cycle or, I mean, office hysteroscopy would be fine, but I don't, I don't think you need to do that. If they've said you had a normal endometrium before, a normal lining before, after your myomectomy, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing that. I mean, I, I think you just need to try again. Your lining is really not all that bad. Even the 7.3, I don't think is all that bad. Yeah, I think it's some of this is, you know, we, we do have things we can do. I agree that, yes, 7.3 isn't exactly where I wanted to be, but I've had plenty of babies with linings of seven and greater. Yeah, um, absolutely. Kind of the strength of trilaminar. That makes me almost think, you know, are your doctors measuring your progesterone level to make sure your progesterone level is staying low? In our practice, somewhere between one and 1.5 is where we would potentially cancel due to kind of endogenous progesterone exposure. I know Carrie's not a fan of ERA, but I am. And so I wouldn't do an ERA on a bad cycle, but if your progesterone level was low, but I mean, ERA, I think is something reasonable to do. If you want to try a modified natural cycle and your clinic does that, I think it's fine. You know, it's one of those things that I would find out what types of other cycles, frozen embryo transfer cycles, does your clinic typically do? because you want to do something that they do well. Probably, and what the success rates are with a modified natural too, I would say. Absolutely. It's kind of what you're alluding to. And if you've had a saline ultrasound two months ago, I hysteroscopy is reasonable, but I agree with Abby. I don't think you have to at this point. What, what are your thoughts, Carrie? So um, a little bit different in some respects. Um, <laughs> That's why we all are three different physicians. We have three different opinions, right? So I don't think I've ever seen a, a lining go from trilaminar to opaque 
back to trilaminar when it's gone fully opaque. I have seen it be just a difference in water content where one day it looks more opaque and then you do it again a couple of days later when you're like, I'm not so sure about this. And I have seen it go back to trilaminar there. So it depends on how far off of trilaminar it is. Repeating it two days later is rarely going to hurt. When I look at the baselines, your baselines are relatively thick. If I heard that correctly, 7.9, 6.7, like usually I start most of my baselines less than five. Now there's no data behind that. There's no paper that says if you start greater than five, that you have a problem. It's just kind of general convention. But when I look at the delta, meaning how thick your lining got after it, you really only increased by about a millimeter and a half. And that is not very much. And so I wonder how much that has to do with it. So I actually probably would do a hysteroscopy to take a look because you've had major uterine surgery. You didn't mention whether or not there were DNCs after those miscarriages, but that maybe They were both DNAs. Okay. So there, there's instrumentation there. Yeah. Um, about 15% of patients have endometritis and that's not going to get picked up on a saline ultrasound. So I would probably like, you've had a fair amount of instrumentation. You've had some losses. Um, your lining is not getting super thick. Like I would take a look with an office hysteroscopy because at least in our hands, the way we do it, we don't use anesthesia. We give medications ahead of time, two minutes in and out and done. And most people tolerate it pretty well. So I would err on the side of doing that because if we can get you in a better place with a couple of weeks of doxy to treat the endometritis, so much the better. Modified natural cycle, particularly after getting pregnant makes sense. But again, it, it has to be something that your center does and does well. And Susan's right. I'm not a huge fan of the ERA, particularly in a cycle that doesn't go well. Like that doesn't make sense to me. You need to do it on a good cycle if you're going to do it. Yeah. So that's kind of my two cents thinking about all of that. Like I would probably start with the office hist and evaluating why your lining is not thin to start off with at your baseline, because that's something that it just kind of hopped out at me. You know, one other thing I just thought about, and she may have mentioned this, but I don't remember. She had an ectopic at one point that was treated with methotrexate. Did anybody ever check her tube afterwards? Good question to see if there's a hydrosalpinx there. Yeah, because if there's a hydrosalpinx, sometimes that can cause issues with implantation. And so I would guess your doctor probably thought about that, but it might not be a bad idea to check your fallopian tube and just make sure that it's patent and that it's not obstructed because that can actually decrease your chances of pregnancy. And that actually segues really well into our topic today, which is life after ectopic pregnancy. Yes. You did that very smoothly, Carrie. <laughs> Why, thank you. I am very, really very pleased with myself. Like, oh, a good segue. <laughs> Go. Okay. So of course, the first thing to do is define what is an ectopic pregnancy. So Abby, what's an ectopic pregnancy for our listeners? Well, it's basically a pregnancy that's not where it should be. And most of the time, that means a pregnancy within the fallopian tube. But rarely, we can also see ectopic pregnancies in the ovary and other places in the body cavity and the peritoneal lining, which is the lining of the, the body cavity in different organs every now and then. But it's basically a pregnancy that's not where it's supposed to be. And so when you discover that there's a pregnancy where it's not supposed to be, and I know that we've got a whole episode on, on ectopics that we've done previously, but what are the, the kind of general ways that you can address that, Susan? So there are, I kind of group them in three ways personally. So one, you can address it surgically. Okay. So we can go and operate and remove the ectopic pregnancy wherever it may be. Um, we can address it medically. 
which is a situation where you end up taking medicine. So that methotrexate that our listener had used for her ectopic pregnancy, it's a chemotherapy agent that's used in very small dosages, but it works to stop a pregnancy from continuing to develop. And it works very well for a lot of ectopic pregnancies. And in rare cases, you can do expectant management in the case of, you know, it's an ectopic pregnancy, hormone levels are going down and patient is in a place where they can get medical care very quickly and very reliably. And sometimes the rare can resolve on their own. So Abby, when someone's had an ectopic pregnancy, let's say that they have it managed surgically and um, and there's the two different arms of surgery. One is completely taking out the tube. The other is just taking out the pregnancy. So if someone has their tube taken out completely, what do you tell them about they're getting pregnant in the future? How quickly can they start? What do they need to know if their tube has been completely removed? So I always check hormone levels just as an aside, like when somebody, even if somebody's tube is removed, I always check hormone levels. Two times in my career, I've had a patient with a heterotopic pregnancy. So, which means a pregnancy in another place at the same time. So I always check hormone levels, follow them down to less than five. And then generally once their hormone level goes down to less than five, that means they're not pregnant anymore. And so I usually have them wait somewhere between one to three months, depending on the situation. You know, if the tube has been completely removed and you know the hormone levels are negative, then, you know, I don't see, you know, after you've had a bled and had a normal cycle, have you wait through one cycle. And then potentially for most people, I usually start again, but there is a higher risk of having a secondary pregnancy or a pregnancy in that second tube, I should say, um, that could be ectopic. And so from that point on, once you have one ectopic pregnancy, we always make sure that we follow you really closely with subsequent pregnancies. Okay. And then Susan, if someone had just a salpingostomy, meaning the tube gets opened up and you pull the pregnancy out, how is there any differences in how you follow somebody in that case? That person, I'm actually going to be a lot more nervous about in the future. There's some pretty good data that came out a few years ago that actually said in people who had a history of ectopic pregnancy that their pregnancy outcomes down the road are better off if that tube is just removed. Some doctors don't practice that way. Some religious faiths think one way is better than others. Different types of things can fall into that decision-making pattern. But when that, essentially the fallopian tube is opened up and the pregnancy is removed from inside of it. So you're always a little more nervous about some residual pregnancy tissue developing there. So as Abby was talking about in the cases where you take out the whole tube, watching the pregnancy hormone levels, you really want to do that in that situation. And you know, you've had something in that tube that didn't happen correctly, there's going to be healing, there's going to be some scarring. And so just as we're worried, if you've had any ectopic pregnancy before, if you've had what's called a salpingostomy, I'm going to be even more nervous about you getting pregnant using that tube. And that's somebody I would highly, highly recommend having an HSG a few months down the road to see how well things have healed. Does that tube look open? Does it potentially look like now we might have a hydrosalpinx or anything like that? So Susan, even if the tube is open, so say somebody has an ectopic pregnancy in their left tube, you've gone in surgically and removed it. 
few months later, you do this procedure and you see that dye spills out of that tube. I am always going to assume you have an ectopic pregnancy until I know that it's in your uterus. Because when we're looking at those HSGs, the dye tests of the fallopian tubes, we're looking to see if the pipeline is open. We are not able to determine function of that fallopian tube. And your fallopian tube is more than just a pipeline. It's a dynamic organ. It has little projections that help eggs and sperm and embryos go in all the right places. And there's no way for us to evaluate that microarchitecture. That's why we're always really nervous about those fallopian tubes. And for our listeners, if you take your hand and you make a fist and then you shoot out your thumb and you shoot out your index finger, the the distance between the base of your thumb and the base of your index finger, like that's about the distance between tubes. So anything that can go in and insult one tube and make it functioning less efficiently and less normally, it's not that far for it to go to the other one and just insult that one as well. And you may not be able to see it clearly, but you can have two damaged tubes, even if only one shows signs of damage. Like if there's, if it's close enough to damage one, it's close enough to damage the other. And it's watching the company you keep. Like if you got one damaged tube, it's more likely you've got a second damaged tube. Abby, if you have someone who you treat with methotrexate, what do you tell them about getting pregnant post-treatment? Typically when you're exposed to that drug, it's a chemotherapeutic agent and it's in a small dose. It's only a one-time dose. Whereas when people really take it for chemotherapy, they take big doses, repeated doses of it. And and with the methotrexate that we give, sometimes we do give a second dose. Rarely would somebody give a third dose or another dose. But bottom line is, you really want that to clear out of your system. So before somebody gets pregnant again, usually I have them wait about three months before I let them get pregnant again and really recommend that they use something for birth control to really minimize their chances that they would conceive you know, unexpectedly. Right after they take it, I usually tell them there's several things like Avoid intercourse or anything that would be traumatic that could make your tube break open. You know, avoid things like aspirin and alcohol. Those are both broken down in the liver, as is the methotrexate. So it just puts more strain on your liver. Um, avoid the sun. Those are kind of, I think, the big things that I tell patients as far as things to avoid. There are some side effects. And rarely, I've been given this my whole career, really. And I've never seen anybody lose a bunch of hair or get you know, any mouth ulcers, but those are certain things. If you read about it on the internet, those are things that can also be side effects of methotrexate. In my experience, the biggest side effect after somebody takes it is about three days, a patient can have some cramping. And of course, we all get nervous three or four days later if you have cramping, because we're worried that, you know, that's the sign that maybe it's not working and maybe the tube really is breaking open. So in those patients, you know, I always bring them in. I always look with ultrasound. I always do an exam on them. And most of the time, it's really more the sign that the methotrexate starting to work and, and that the tissue starting to, you know, kind of dissolve a little bit. And so that's, you know, the biggest concern just a few days after you take methotrexate. So I think those are most of the side effects. So Susan, how do you approach your patients who, when they come in, they haven't had a recent ectopic, they've had an ectopic however many months or years in the past. And now they're having difficulty getting pregnant. And so they come to you and they're like, Dr. Hudson, fix me, save me. I want a baby, help me out. We have a big conversation, just as you talked about that, you know, whatever caused that first ectopic to happen, there is a reasonable chance that that other tube may have been affected. And that again, as I said, we can test whether a tube is open, but we can't test the function 
of it. And so a lot of that discussion goes between, you know, if we do things more conservatively, things like insemination, superovulation, those types of things where we have to use the tube, you know, what are the risks and benefits? The biggest risk to me is that you could potentially have another ectopic and an ectopic pregnancy is a life-threatening condition. It's scary. We don't like to think about things like that, but that's very real. Okay. And so to me, that's worst case scenario. And the pro of trying to do something like that is obviously IUIs and superovulation is a whole heck of a lot cheaper than doing IVF. However, if you get that ectopic pregnancy and have to have surgery, especially in the middle of the night, that's not going to end up being cheaper for you in the long run. And so we talk about the benefits of IVF in that, you know, the, one of the beauties of IVF is the tubes really are, as long as you don't have a hydrosalpinx, they're really inconsequential. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm excited when I have somebody who's out of tubal ligation. because I'm like, whoo, <laughs> don't have to worry about those tubes. It's definitely one of those situations where every individual has to go into that decision-making process, weighing those risks and benefits of, you know, do I want to go for a higher pregnancy rate and potentially something that's safer and avoiding ectopic pregnancy, but it may cost a lot more, or am I going to try something a little less invasive, but understand that there could be some very substantial risks involved. So Susan, is the risk zero of having an ectopic pregnancy with IVF? No but it's pretty darn low. (laughs) I mean, it's a whole lot lower than if you've had an ectopic pregnancy before and you're trying to get pregnant using your tube. And the stated risks of ectopic pregnancy with IVF is one to 4%. And in my opinion, that's a very high estimation. I haven't had 1% of my IVF pregnancies end up being ectopic pregnancies, but one to 4% is less than that 20 to 30% that if you've had an ectopic pregnancy and we're trying to use that tube again, that's going to happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. But just for our listeners to know, it's not zero even with IVF, but hands down, you're right. Much, 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 much lower chance if you do IVF for sure. Another thing is that realize that not like, like we mentioned, not all ectopic pregnancies are in the fallopian tubes. That's the most common place, but we can have, as Carrie mentioned, they can be in the cervix. Um, we can have pregnancies and C-section scars. We can have pregnancies that are actually kind of free-floating-ish in the abdomen. They can happen in all different ways, shapes, and forms. And depending on where they are, really sometimes makes a decision on you know, what type of surgery or chemotherapy can be used. Sometimes the only option, unfortunately, because of position of it, sometimes, I mean, in worst case scenarios, you could actually end up with a hysterectomy. That's really rare. But if you have a corneal ectopic, an ectopic pregnancy, that's kind of right at the junction of where the fallopian tube and the uterus is, those can be quite challenging to resolve. And so, like I said, it's exceptionally rare for us, for somebody to end up with that type of situation. But, you know, it's not always the type of situation where it's like, oh, we have all these different options and, you know, there's not any big risks, no matter what you do. You know, there's some things we do that, you know, you get to have lots of options and not a whole lot of risks. But unfortunately, in the ectopic pregnancy world, that's not usually the case. 
You know, one other thing I wanted to make a comment about too was, you know, that's why as reproductive endocrinologists and, you know, general gynecologists do this too, pretty early on in your workup for infertility, we want to check your tubes because we don't want you to do some sort of treatment for several months and find out that your tubes are blocked or that you have, you know, hydrosalpinges, blockages. Those things can occur from being exposed to sexually transmitted diseases like gonorrhea and chlamydia. You know, even some people occasionally don't even know that they've had chlamydia and yet their tubes are damaged. And sometimes it means they're completely blocked, but other times it means they're partially blocked. So sperm can get through the tube, fertilize the egg, but when the egg tries to get all the way from the end of the tube back into the uterine cavity, it gets caught in the fallopian tube. Other things that can cause blockage or damage to tubes would be endometriosis. That's another common one that we see. Occasionally, other things like surgeries that you may have had, like particularly fairly big surgeries, like surgeries on your bowel that can cause scarring that can damage the ends of the fallopian tubes. Also, an appendectomy, particularly if it was ruptured before the surgeon removed it, those are big red flags when we're talking to patients that we really want to make sure sooner rather than later the tubes are evaluated. Even if it's a patient that we know doesn't ovulate regularly or we know the sperm count's low and we think there's another reason, sometimes, unfortunately, we see patients that have two issues. So if you're listening and you've not had your tubes evaluated, really good idea to do that sooner rather than later. That's also part of one of the reasons that we check hormone levels early. So even if you have a spontaneous pregnancy and you just call our office and say, okay, what do I do next? We're almost always going to bring you in right away, get a quantitative HCG, and then a couple of days later, repeat it to make sure that it's increasing appropriately. Because if it's not, we want to know about it early. And most offices will bring you in as early as we think we are going to see something in the uterus. Because if we do not see something in the uterus, we want to know as early as possible because in general, we want to be able to give methotrexate. There's less surgical intervention. There's less morbidity, all of that. And so that works much better for any treatment of an ectopic when you catch it early. And that's why we are so meticulous about, all right, we'll see you in two days. Come back. You know, We'll see you next week. We'll see you at a very short interval until we are certain, okay, there's something in the uterus. There is no threat here. Whether it goes good or bad, there is at least no life threat. And so that's why we are so meticulous about that. And Susan made the comment that when we see hormone levels, and particularly if they're not going up well, our first thought is worst case scenario. You know, the onus is on us to prove it's not a tubal pregnancy. But just know that when you see different types of physicians and you see ER physicians, some people don't have, you know, they're just not trained in the way we are. And so I have seen situations where patients go to the emergency room and they're having pain and sort of nobody thinks to check a pregnancy test or they do. And then they look with ultrasound and go, oh, well, we don't see anything in your tube, so everything's fine. Well, it depends on what your hormone level is. So if your hormone level is really low, you could still have an ectopic pregnancy and, and sometimes even be having pain if it's gone up and now it's on its way down. And so just realize that if you are having pain and you know, you think at all, it could be, you know, if it's one-sided pain and you know you're pregnant, then make sure you get yourself to somebody who, you know, does this for a living commonly, like your OBGYN or your reproductive endocrinologist, because some people just don't have, you know, the level of training where they understand all the nuances with the neck topic. And I will say that there's nothing you can hang your hat on. The more, the longer I've done this, the more I realize I've seen patients that are completely without symptoms and have a big ectopic pregnancy. I've seen people that just have fluid in their body cavity and nothing else that makes me think something's going on. So you really can't hang your hat on any one symptom. It's really 
it's really pretty difficult to, to diagnose an ectopic pregnancy. And sometimes it requires several different visits to the doctor's office for anybody to make the diagnosis. So it's kind of tricky. So just make sure that you see the right person and keep going back if you keep having symptoms that you're worried about. Absolutely. All right. Well, that was a very good, very informative episode for a wide swath of the patients that we see. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. Please feel free to leave us a review in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Come visit us on Facebook. Come visit us on Instagram. Um, Leave us a follow. Leave us a like. Say hello. We love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsandcensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Docs segment. So don't hold back. We also love episode ideas. So let us know what you're thinking and want to hear. And as always, this podcast is intended for entertainment. It's not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. 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 We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.